Welcome to another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, Managing Editor of the CRS and your host. In this program, we feature four scholars whose work appears in recent issues of the journal. We have two features on labor and employment in Canada. Vesna Pajovic and Kim Shuey tell us about their research on stress in the workplace. And Caitlin Mitri asks, does education matter anymore in a world where part-time and gig work are so prevalent? But first, we enter the wild world of social media to see how people use these tools to participate in discussions around controversial issues. Let's get started. I've heard the Twitterverse compared to the Wild West, where regulation is thin, exchanges are bitter, and you have to have a thick skin to survive. And this is just in discussions around Beyonce. What about debates around more substantial issues? How do people use social media to engage with controversial or ethical subjects? Our next guest and her colleagues wanted to find out. Hello, I'm Mirella Lancette. I'm a professor of political communication at Université du Québec at Trois-Rivières in uh, Quebec. Dr. Lalancette and her colleagues, Stephanie Yates and Carol Ann Ruyard, have an article in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's called Hashtag Participating, Hashtag Contesting, Studying Counterpublics Discourses on Twitter about the social acceptability of medical assistance in dying legislation in Canada. It's part of a larger research initiative in which they are involved. So the project is about social media uses in relation to controversial projects. We have different case studies, some in relation with ethical projects, like the one related to the article, and also environmentally related projects. For Dr. Lelancet and her colleagues, a key question around ethical or controversial issues involves their social acceptability. That is, the extent to which people believe that the decisions and activities surrounding them are good for everyone. The scholars wanted to explore how people negotiate this through social media. So they looked to people's responses to one such issue, medical assistance in dying legislation, or MAID. We were interested because uh, social acceptability is often studied in relation to uh, like real projects, like building something, all the NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard question and issues. So we were also interested to, to add more ethical uh, projects. So when we were discussing uh, this project, the, the MADE legislation was taking place. Here, Dr. Lalancette explains their approach. So we harvested all the tweets using the hashtag May project, hashtag legislative assembly. So, so all the hashtag, we harvested all the tweets around this project. By chance, it was the old Twitter that we analyzed. It was only 140 characters. So the, the tweets were shorter to analyze. So we harvested more than 1,000 tweets around the subject. 
And we coded all the tweets and inductively created categories in order to analyze the content and also the tone of the messages. Were they neutral, positive, or negative? Or were they used to inform, to discuss, to criticize, to attack? Given Twitter's reputation as a place populated by trolls and extremists, you wouldn't think that any sort of measured discussion on an issue would happen. But the data had some surprises in store. One of the best thing about research is debunking myths or impressions that we might have, like just glancing at the tweets or glancing at the data. So a systematic analysis helped us to see that lay citizens were really taking part in the debate about MAID. And they offered their ways of seeing the bill and its potential consequences. So it was really interesting to see citizens taking part in the debate. Also, the second finding was that Twitter was used as a news reporting tool in order to foster discussion and debate about the bill. So this was also interesting and in helping people to advocate for or against the proposed modification of the law. So people against the law use mostly negative metaphoric expression like assisted suicide, killing, murder, and people also express their empathy for sick people and voice their concern about their suffering. So it was really a place to express uh, many views about the future legislation. The third finding that I found really interesting is that experts were also part of the debate. Medical experts like nurses and doctors use the platform in order to reassure citizens about the way medical assistance in dying works. So it was really interesting to see that they use really an expert tone explaining the situation to the people who were following the, the feed. The bottom line is that although social media can still be a wild and woolly place, it can still serve as an effective, if crowded, platform for expression. Social media offers new ways for citizens and experts to talk about projects like medical lesson in dying in Canada. So citizen advocacy group experts were able to seek empowerment through social media use. They used social media like journalists. They were informing people, they were offering expertise, knowledge about the draft bill. Not surprisingly, they used a lot of emotion while they were tweeting, but they were also appealing to reason. This leads to deconstruct the myth of social media only being used to criticize and sharing opinions. So there was like a balanced way of using Twitter in 2016. But this leads us to reflect more generally about the changes on social media platform. So rapid changing pace and the possibility to modify the new action repertoires in contact with social media platforms. So it enables people to take in part of societal debates and also to be able to 
follow new information, follow people, follow experts that are informing them in new ways using social media. Read the entire article, hashtag participating, hashtag contesting, studying counterpublics discourses on Twitter about the social acceptability of medical assistance in dying legislation in Canada by Dr. Lalancette and her colleagues in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Workplace stress. It was of social concern before the pandemic and has continued to impact people whether they've been forced to work from home or have had to labor in occupations that require contact with the public. Our next guests wanted to find out more about the kinds of stressors people experience at work. I'm Kim Shuey, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at Western University. And my name is Vesna Pajovic, and I'm a doctoral candidate at Western working with Dr. Shuey. Ms. Pajovic and Dr. Shuey have published a research note in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled Patterns and Stratification of Stressor Exposure Among Canadian Workers. Dr. Shuey explains what inspired the study. This research note stemmed from Vesna's master's research. And we had noted that there's a lot of research out there that suggests that work-related stress is a significant issue for Canadian workers today. There are estimates that suggest that over a third of workers in industrial economies experience high levels of work-related stress. And the stress that is associated with work has long-term negative effects on worker health and well-being across their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And jumping off from that, we were interested in how work stress might be distributed among different groups of workers and how specific work stressors or stressors that are embedded in the work environment could provide an explicit link between wider social conditions and work stress as an outcome. And what we've seen in the literature on work stressors is a tendency to identify and link very specific individual stressors to health outcomes. And often stressors are examined only individually and one at a time as if they were totally independent and totally unrelated aspects of work. In the workplace, stressors are most often not experienced just one at a time, but rather all at once or very closely in time. So we really wanted to go further in the measurement of stressors to see how they're patterned together so we could better approximate how they're experienced by and distributed among workers. Makes sense. Workers are usually subject to multiple stressors at the same time, and it's their cumulative impact that makes for a stressful workplace. But how do we begin to capture and measure these overlapping effects? Both Vesna and I are, are life course scholars. And so we're interested in thinking about the idea of patterns. So here in this uh, research note, we were interested in identifying how patterns of work or occupational stressors are configured across the Canadian working population. So like what stressors tend to occur together um, and how do they hang together in, in particular occupations? And then we're also, interested in inequality and exposure to these patterns of stressors and whether experiences are different for different workers based on factors like social class, gender, age, immigrant status. And then finally, we were interested in how these kinds of patterns or clusters of stressors relate to individual perceptions of how stressful their job is on a more global scale. 
So how did these scholars go about this research? Vesna Pajovic describes their process. Um, so our data came from the 2012 Canadian Community Health Survey, which in that particular wave of the survey included a mental health component that asked a series of questions about which work stressors were reported in the workplace. Our sample included Canadian workers aged 20 and older, and we were interested specifically in six unique stressors identified by the literature, like, for example, having a hectic job, repetitive tasks, or conflicting demands on your time. And then to look at how the stressors are patterned, we used latent class analysis or LCA, which helps identify combinations or patterns of stressors across a sample. And we were specifically drawn to this method because it can be used to examine phenomena in a distinctly social way in that it categorizes individuals into groups that experience a similar pattern of responses to a series of questions. Finally, we also use these groups as a categorical variable in multivariate models to see how they're related to other social and economic characteristics like occupation and income. Their results show that workplace stressors cluster or form patterns across occupations. Results also show that they are unequally distributed among the workforce, as Dr. Shuey describes. First observation is that we identified a number of very common patterns in the data that suggest that certain stressors are very strongly related in that they're usually experienced together. So, for example, a common pairing was a physically demanding work and repetitive work. And then another common pairing was a hectic pace of work and conflicting demands that seemed very chaotic. And then for about almost 20% of the sample, they experienced nearly all of the stressors that we looked at all at once. So very clear patterns of which stressors actually occur together and which don't. And then our second major observation was that exposure to particular stressor patterns was unequally distributed by factors such as occupation and social class. So for example, certain types of occupations such as blue collar and service work had higher odds of experiencing jobs involving all of the stressors while white-collar workers were more likely exposed to a primarily hectic or chaotic workplace or one with very few stressors. And then we also found, with some exceptions, that less educated, lower-income female and middle-aged workers were more likely to experience a pattern including all of the stressors or patterns suggesting more physically demanding or repetitive work. And then our final major observation is that some of the stressor patterns we found were more closely related to reporting higher overall stress, um, such as, for example, pairing of repetitive work with low input over tasks, which then suggests how experiences of overall stress are also unequally distributed and how these inequalities can be linked to specific aspects of the job through the stressors we looked at. By examining which workplace stressors tend to combine, and in which sorts of industries, we can better grasp the nature of the stress that people in different groups are subject to. Well, I think this research note in general calls for a more nuanced, more holistic understanding of work environments. The work stress literature um, has been pretty limited in its approach to thinking about what is stressful about jobs. Jobs provide a unique context, a unique combination of experiences for workers that have varying effects on health. And so the stressors that people encounter at work, they could stem from a number of things related to the, the demands of the work itself, workplace culture that's set by managers and by other workers, 
by the pace of work and the actual tasks that are required. And there are some environments that are particularly harmful for worker health. And these, these environments aren't defined by one specific particular characteristic as has been typically the focus of other research. More vulnerable workers, lower educated, lower income workers, as well as women, they're more likely to experience a work environment that involves a combination of stressors that have the potential to interact to more adversely affect health. So in this case, workers that were exposed to a chaotic stressor pattern were significantly more likely to report high work stress than those experiencing a more monotonous environment. This could be one factor that impacts the stress levels of white collar jobs that we typically think about as, as better jobs. So overall, I think we were encouraging readers to, to understand how qualitatively different aspects can combine to create unique experiences. Patterns and Stratification of Stressor Exposure Among Canadian Workers by Vesna Pajovic and Kim Shuey is available in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Does higher education help us get a better job? Well, those of us in university certainly hope so, and historically it has. But what about these days? when short-term contracts, gig work, and other kinds of non-standard employment are so prevalent? My next guest wanted to find out. My name is Caitlin Mitri. I'm a PhD candidate at Western University, and some of my research interests are non-standard or precarious employments. And then my second research interest is outbound student mobility, which is less formally known as students who go abroad for international exchanges and their school of work transitions. Ms. Mitri has an article in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled, Does Higher Education Make a Difference? The Influence of Educational Attainment on Women's and Men's Non-Standard Employment Outcomes. She explains what led her to this study. Yeah, so there was kind of three bodies of literature that were motivating this research. Firstly, I was actually reading the book The Precariat by Guy Standing. And so he kind of talks about this growing level of insecurity, flexibility that benefits only employers and makes people very vulnerable and very precarious. <laughs> and um, so I kind of wanted to explore that in the Canadian context and I looked up the history of employment in Canada. And so I found that there was two things happening in Canada. So we have the processes of globalization and deindustrialization, which both created a lot of competition for employers, but also eroded a lot of employee protections and created new types of employment, such as temporary employment and part-time employment. The second body of the literature that I'm looking at is human capital theory, which makes these claims that higher investments into education should result in greater returns. But what we're actually seeing is that there could be some diffusion of non-standard employment among really highly educated professionals. So for example, nearly one in five Canadian professionals held a precarious work contract in 2018. So it kind of made me question, does education really provide the benefits of security? Then next, we also have a big body of feminist literature talking about women's position in non-standard employment. So women just disproportionately are more likely to go into positions of part-time and contract work. 
However, some scholarship is noting that now many men are also experiencing the same precarious working conditions that women are traditionally funneled into. And so this kind of brings me back to this original point, is non-standard employment being more diffused across different groups of workers? And is this something that we should be concerned, especially because a lot of non-standard working conditions do bring adverse living conditions, like not having stable wages, not being able to even plan your future, and just not having this career narrative and having that identity being attached to a career. Drawing on these bodies of literature, Ms. Mitri formulated three research questions. Firstly, I wanted to investigate the changes of different forms of non-standard employment between the last couple of decades. Then I also wanted to examine if there were these educational and gender differences among rates of non-standard employment. And then lastly, I also want to analyze if these educational and gender differences kind of changed over that, that two-decade period. These are big questions that required amalgamating several different sources of labor force data. For my analysis, I actually pulled together 40 different Canadian labor force surveys. So specifically, I pulled together each of the January and July labor force surveys between the years 1997 and 2018. I then performed three sets of multivariate logistic regression models that examined the likelihood of being either temporary, part-time, or non-standard forms of self-employment. The first set of models look at an interaction between gender and education, just to kind of examine those gendered and educational differences between different types of non-standard employment. The second set of models looks at the changes of non-standard employment throughout the years 1997 to 2018. And then the last set of models are stratified by education level and have an interaction between gender and year. So we're, we're looking at these gendered and educational differences throughout the two decades now. And so all models actually controlled for different demographic factors, such as marital status, age. There were some things that I had to disclude just because the variables weren't in earlier months, like immigrant status, which would have been really good. But um, so I have some demographic controls, but I'm also controlling for things like industry and occupation. So what did Ms. Mitri's analysis reveal about education, non-standard work, and gender in Canada? One of the first results that are quite striking is that non-standard employment has actually decreased over the past two decades, which is kind of unexpected, and this was especially for part-time employment. Another outcome was that women are disproportionately represented in part-time employment and somewhat overrepresented in temporary employment which is given given the literature and the work that's previously been done on this. However, over time, there has been a somewhat of a convergence between men and women in these forms of employment. So women's rates of temporary and part-time employment have actually slightly decreased. But what's a little more jarring is that men are actually increasing the representation within these different forms of non-standard employment. And then lastly, the non-standard employment gap between men and women actually does narrow at different educational levels. So as education increased, we saw that this gap tended to narrow. And this was more so for temporary and part-time employment. So some good news and some bad news. Ms. Mitri describes the implications of her research and answers the question we started with, does higher education matter anymore? The first thing, that I want to state is that just because we see that non-standard employment is kind of decreasing over time, it doesn't mean that precarity is not exactly rising. It could just be more so capturing business cycles that are happening. I think in the long run, we would probably see if we went even back further that 
there would be kind of overall trend of non-standard employment rising. But again, that would be something that would need to be further explored. And I think the diffusion of non-standard employment among men and women can either suggest that precarity is becoming something that's more common, but we also do see that women are also decreasing their levels of non-standard employment, which kind of suggests that they could be making advancements into more secure employment. So that could just be, you know, women are now breaking glass ceilings. They're, a lot of them are now becoming more professionals. A lot of them are earning higher levels of education. It wouldn't be surprising that women are now entering more secure levels of employment. And I think lastly too, that there is still this protective effect of education because throughout the study, you are seeing that really high levels of education, especially are providing some sort of protection against these non-standard employment contracts. So it would probably be still good to invest in education. It's not worthless. Find the article, Does Higher Education Make a Difference? The Influence of Educational Attainment on Women's and Men's Non-Standard Employment Outcomes by Caitlin Mitri in the February 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. We've come to the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Lots more conversations to come with authors of work from the May 2021 issue of the journal, so stay tuned. I'm Karen Stanbridge. Wow.